Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Awesome. So today we are lucky. We are deeply lucky. We have um, Eliza Edison, VP, Technical Operations and Strategy at Elephant Healthcare with us. Hi, Eliza. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm great. Um, Eliza was just educating me on uh, many things uh, before we before we started the podcast. Not least that uh, there was actually someone called Tesla. Yeah, uh, it turns out that there are some people who do not know that the brand name Tesla took the name from the inventor, uh, 19th and early 20th century inventor Nikola Tesla, famed for research in electricity and magnetism and 10 times the engineer that Edison ever was. So Yeah, and it, um, this is kind of classic of Eliza and I when we have a conversation is I end up feeling non-intelligent and um and and yeah deeply in awe and that's why i'm so excited to, to have you on today i've always been super impressed by the things that you've done the places that you've worked your you know your cv is is impressive and so that's kind of what we wanted to discuss today was because you've you've worked here you've worked back in the states uh you've worked at multiple different companies we want to look at you know your experience of those cultures and and so that's the topic of today's episode. We're looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly of when it comes to culture. As someone that's experienced the full spectrum, great cultures and what they can do for a business, um, bad cultures, negative cultures. How does that sound? That sounds great. Nice. Happy to be here. Let's do it. Okay, perfect. Um, so let's start with maybe the best culture that you've experienced. Can you remember, is there, is there a company, is there an environment that comes to mind when I ask you that question? Uh, probably the first thing that comes to mind is the team I had at Palantir. So uh, externally, the name of the team is the Business Operations and Strategy Team. But because everything at Palantir either has a nerdy or military nickname internally, I was on the R2-D2 team. So the droids at Palantir are probably the um, the best culture I've ever been a part of. Amazing. And why? What what? What made them so great? So the interview process was uh, very structured. I've recently read a book uh, that has an intensely clickbaity title called "Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders?" Wow! And it there lot. It was written by a serious person. Originally, I was going to ignore it because a name like that is so incendiary. How could the content be any good? But the author, who's uh, his first name's Tomas. His last name is hyphenated. I think he's Brazilian. He writes for the Harvard Business Review a lot. And it's just a huge aggregation of um, social science studies and, and conclusions from them. But um, he uh, talks about how the best way to identify good leaders is structured interview processes. Like if you have a laissez-faire, sit down with your notebook and a coffee and like just chat mm. with someone, you're n basically going to confirm your own biases and that's all you get. So it was um, an intense interview process that whose sort of crown jewel or uh, pinnacle was something called a who interview. Um, we would always joke when we interviewed candidates, like it's going to be two hours. We're going to go through every chapter of your life and don't worry, it'll feel like therapy. We'll send you the bill afterwards. So we would start taking every chapter of someone's life and ask them for um for something very far back like high school or wow. i don't know what you call that here like um yeah high school high that school works. Great, yeah great. Se secondary school secondary school um we would say maybe like one high one low and then at every transition we would ask them to talk through that transition like so when you applied to college how did you think about that and then uh when you left college like how did you think about what job to take and mostly because 
candidates are prepared for the basic, like what's your strength, what's your weakness? Anybody who's halfway smart is gonna have a perfectly good answer to most of those questions. These were the sorts of things that we had a rubric of seven skills and traits that we really needed to see. And so by having them talk about their life in such a sweeping way, so if they mentioned that they like weren't, that they were a little bit driven by ego in a particular decision early in their life, you can, an hour later when you're getting to a different chapter of their life, dig really deep in on that and like draw that draw that theme out and see and learn about them. So that, I mean, that's a huge tangent about that type of interview. But the team at Palantir was a really interesting cross-section of um, uh, engineers and lawyers and uh, political scientists who all had like a strong analytical bend, but were all deeply operational. Mm. Um, and the team was led with clear principles. And the first principle, um, the prime directive, as the team lead would say, is that R2s take care of other R2s. Uh, basically, we took care of each other before anything else. And so it was a team full, like we were cross-sectional across Palantir. Very rarely did two of us partner on any particular project in any corner of the business. But if I was staying late in the office and somebody was heading home for the night and they saw that I was struggling with how to make a particular model work in Excel or something like that, uh, it was the sort of team where everybody would, they would like put down their bag and miss their train and, and help me figure it out. And do you think that one of the reasons why that, particular team culture worked so well was because you were aligned on values, behaviors type of person because of that really rigorous interview process? Uh, we were, I think we, we didn't know about the values and behavior before we joined, right? That's how we were chosen. And then once we got in, we were trained. There was like an induction of sorts where these, these key traits were emphasized and, um, principles hammered home. So I think, um, uh, something I have found to be true in every environment I've ever worked in is that culture, you can you can say, you can contribute and influence how you like from most positions, but the leader of the organization sets the culture and the leader of the team was very insistent on this culture. And, I, and so it's a, it's a great credit to him. Yeah, it's amazing. I think you're so right. You know, this stuff often, I say comes from the top and I think that's a bad, that's a bad phrase because it's not about, necessarily one person deciding what the culture is. But I do think that leaders in whatever area, part of the business they're in, they have to set an amazing example. The quickest way to undermine culture is for a leader, whoever they are, to step outside of that and 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 take on a behavior that is against or in conflict with what the culture is that they've, they've defined. So take me through what you think the effect of that culture was on you personally, like, how did it make you feel? I I think it made me feel um, a number of things. Uh, the, there's that big Google study about how they figured out how their most highest performing teams internationally, how they worked in the term psychological safety. Am I thinking it's yeah. Google, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that that term comes to mind. I think I felt a strong a strong sense of psychological safety in interpersonal friendships on the team and in the ethos of the team, um, there was a strong, uh, a strong encouragement to, uh, be quick with feedback, but like caring with it too. Mm. Like I never got the sense that anyone gave me feedback for any other reason than they wanted me to be better tomorrow. So it still might sting in some situations or another, but there was a sense of like a deep investment in one another. Um, and so I, it made me feel a strong psychological safety. Like I really deeply trusted the people around me um, to do, want what was best for my career and also what was best for me as a human being. 
I think it also made me feel um, deeply driven. These are the sorts of people that, um, I mean, so the team lead, his name's Kurt Schwartz. He's an extraordinary person. He uh, was is a veteran and also was a sniper in the Dayton police force. So there were a lot of military terms mm. being used in uh, on our team um, with an intensity um, that not didn't always feel like it applied to office work. But he, he would say... Um, he, uh, Kurt would often say, uh, he, he, because he had these military terms, the image that comes to mind is I felt like I, I would go into battle with him. Mm. Like if he, if he had a thing that counted, I would drop something and do it for him. Like it, and for everybody else on the team, we had the sense of being in the trenches with one another. And because we cared so much about each other, there was a strong sense of like deep camaraderie. Yeah. Um, and, um, being in the, like that sort of like gritty in the trenches feeling that you only get from like the best partnerships of your life. Yeah. And, um, one of my favorite books, uh, that kind of shaped my early thinking on leadership is the, the Simon Sinek book, Leaders Mm. Eat Last. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a great example. And what you've described there is, is exactly that, which is that leadership often is not about being the most important or, being the highest paid or the biggest title it's about creating an environment where there is safety mm-hmm. and where your team feel like they can do their absolutely be- their best work and you've got their back do you think that there was a performance improvement for that team because of the culture that Kerr had created oh I think absolutely and unequivocally um, between the culture that encouraged feedback which everyone's own personal experience and all the data prove that we, that helps you become a better, better and improve your performance. Um, and then just the ethos, it was, he would always say, this is not a lifestyle job. Like you don't come here to go home and have a pint with someone after mm. work, like you come here to work. And so it took a lot of us, it asked a lot of us. And because it did, it required that he receive that with like respect and support so he was he was always there to take a call if we needed help and and so um yeah it, it was an extraordinarily high performing team i was talking to someone who recent recently left i left palantir a few years ago um this friend of mine left a few months ago and i was asking her which um what she thought she might be doing next and she basically was deciding between four different startups founded by four different people from this team mm. she was like i only i just want to keep staying in this environment in this space so okay so that's interesting so my question would be, do you think that you've changed as an individual from that experience? So I believe that work has such an impact on our lives, you know, especially the type of environments that we work in. I also think that I guess we sit outside of the millennial classification, but you know, whatever we are, maybe we're millennial, maybe we're Gen Z. I don't I don't necessarily You're understand certainly not Gen Z. Where the where the boundaries are. <laughs> I'm 30. I'm, I'm trying to stay young. I'm trying to cl- <laughs> cling on to my 20s with all of the claws and nails that I have. We're going to be working for a long time. I believe that we will. We will live longer lives. Work will continue to be a a bigger part of that. And so, there is a train of thought, which is that it has greater opportunity to affect your own personal and individual development in terms of who you are. Do you think you're a different person because of that two-year experience at Palantir? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in ways that uh, you don't 
like a job is so many things other than the actual job, right? Like it's because of Palantir that I ended up in London and I've built a life here and that's completely transformed my life and, and affected me in a number of ways, um, all lovely. Um, but individually from a professional perspective, uh, I have to say it was an extraordinary thing speaking as a woman to have a really like a raging feminist of a boss like I had worked, so I am I am also 30, though I am not pretending to be Gen Z. Uh, and I um, I have never, I've never reported to a woman. Um, and I think a lot of people will say that they've never had a female boss. And I often worry that I've gotten successful and senior enough so quickly that I might not, because now I'm interacting, like the, the world is just filtered out and... Mm. Um, Anyway, so this is, it was extraordinary. At this time, of course, I still hadn't reported to a woman. And Kurt, was, so for example, I was in a meeting with my project lead, my manager, and Kurt. And all these were brilliant guys who'd been at Palantir for a bit and very successful at Palantir. And I'd done badly on a project. Um, I It wasn't set up well, and I didn't communicate that it wasn't set up well. I just sort of locked myself in a closet and tried to brute force make it work. And it... Because, you know, uh, the basic maxim, you shouldn't ask for help without, like, an idea about how to be helped. Mm -hmm. And I was just drowning, and I had no idea how to be helped. And I held on to that maxim too tightly. And so now forever, I put a little asterisk on it. I'm like, yes, if you ask for help, you should be offer a solution when you ask for help. But if you don't have one, still ask for help. Like, that yeah, is sure. <laughs> that is the, the the footnote I offer. But um, so I was, I, I was in this meeting, and it hadn't gone well, and it was basically a, a postmortem. Um, and uh, I was going through week by week, like what decisions I made when and why. And I started to cry because I'd been working just insane hours and I had done badly. And um, anyway, I started to cry. And uh, I was, of course, quite embarrassed because when you're crying, it's more difficult to speak. And like there's three men there and it's a professional setting regardless of gender. And uh, Kurt, as I collected myself and, and calmed down, Kurt said, uh, Many studies and our own observations have proven that when women cry at work, men take them less seriously. I sincerely hope that is not happening in this room right now. And he just, like, he said it was such, like, it, and it was amazing. And I resolved to do that forevermore. Like mm -hmm. if I was in a professional setting where a woman was crying, I would just, I would just name what was subconsciously or consciously happening in the room and counter it. And that's completely affected me. I think um, and made me uh, a better leader. And I carry so many pieces of this into my day-to-day -day work and my vision for the person I want to be in a, a professional and personal setting going forward. That's so amazing. I love that. And I, I imagine that you also hope that you will have the effect that Kurt had on you to those that you get to work with over the next 10, 20, 30 years. What is the difference as someone who's, you know, worked in Palo Alto, worked in California, worked in the Valley, the Valley, <laughs> and has then also worked for, you know, high growth tech companies in London. How do you see those cultural differences? Are they obvious or are they not as obvious as we would, we would think and we would believe? Uh, so I think um, in some ways there's huge overlap, both because a lot of tech companies are international, right? Like, uh, Google has an office, LinkedIn has an office, and those cultures will will permeate from their from their Silicon Valley headquarters. Uh, and I think it's it's also it's it's like a weird hybrid. I find that the affection for candor and upfront feedback that Silicon Valley has um, is espoused in in London, and definitely there's candid people with good feedback in London. I'm not I'm certainly not saying there aren't, uh, but there's something to be said. 
I am a lot, maybe is what I'm saying. I am an incredibly candid, um, expressive, uh, enthusiastic person. And I overwhelm people here sometimes, I find, more than mm. I did back home. So I think culturally, it's not so much like a description of what's of of what the space is like, so much as um, somebody was telling me they read a book once about like international colleagues, basically, in communication. They did a study across a bunch of people, and uh, they found that the combination of nationalities that communicated the worst was um, British people and Americans, mm. because you assume you're speaking the same language. But you're not. Yeah. It's so interesting. So being candid, I remember when I first was in a meeting room with you mm -hmm. and it was a breakfast. There was like 12 of us around the table and you spoke so confidently, but you spoke a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, always, always good and useful things. Thank God. But I, I remember coming out of that meeting and being like, yeah, having that exact reaction, being like, wow, like, and I know I can say this to you because I feel like we have that level of relationship now. I, mem I remember thinking, Eliza is a lot. That mm -hmm. was in that was in that was in that was intense. But actually, that's because I was looking at you through the lens of the people I am typically surrounded with, right? And once you understand your background and where you're from, it, 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 and you get to know you, it makes perfect sense, and is actually what I think makes you makes you great. Because what I've discovered over the years is that you are never, you will never not say something that you believe it's important is said, and there are far too many of us that won't say those things, that won't put those things on the table. And I think that our teams and our businesses suffer because we aren't brave enough. Uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me, nor does it hurt me to know that uh, I left the impression of being a lot. I'm glad that it has um, added context. But if I ever continue to be a lot, please uh, give me more feedback. I've just said in a recording that I like feedback. Um, I assume I, there'll be a flurry of emails in yeah. your inbox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just all concerned citizens from, from around the world. Um, on, a, on a personal note that has, I'm sure no one would be interested, so you can go ahead and edit this out, but uh, I, so my, my grandmother was born in a tiny, poor farming town in California called Delano in 1926. And she is, I mean, this is a, uh, this is a town that, Basically, the only people of color they saw before the 70s were like Mexican farm workers. It was a very white, um, settled place. And she like was the first person in her family to go to college. And I, all these things that would make you think the way we talk about older generations, that they um, that we should not as assume they can't evolve and have like modern day opinions. And she is the single raddest feminist, uh, like equal opportunity, like uh, anti-homophobic, anti-trans bigotry person um, that I've ever met. And it often strikes me that if she could be born seven years after women were given the white women were given the legal right to vote in the United States and spent her whole life calling herself a feminist and making that point, the least I can do is follow suit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's very cool. So we've talked a little bit about the, the difference of the culture we have here in London versus versus uh, back in the States and sometimes how that can be jarring and how we, you know, we have to work hard to understand each other better. And even though we're speaking the same language, actually different contexts, different experiences, different environments that we've grown up in. And you've experienced great culture and, and you, you've spoken about that and, and what your experience was like at Palantir. But from our conversations, I know that you've also experienced the opposite of that. What are the 
things that were most obvious when you when you've been working at a company and we're not going to name names because that's unfair but what what were the things that were most obvious and clear in terms of how that culture felt to be a part of um i think uh i think the the feeling that it evokes is a sense of there's a sense of confusion I think because you don't, your initial impression is not to want to believe that it is the bad thing that you're interpreting, whether it uh, be someone makes a sexist remark and you try and categorize that as like, oh, they can't possibly, that's such a backwards thing. Of course they didn't mean that. And, and so there's confusion at the beginning. Mm. And sometimes I can be at the hand of intentional gaslighting or, or those things. There's also um, just extraordinary um, sadness and frustration. Um, it absolutely shuts down your candor. Like, a good culture is one where you raise your hand when you fail and say, I've done this badly. I'd like help fixing it and help never doing it again. And a bad culture is one where you hide your mistakes because the wrath of, of making them is, is so not worth any, any visibility on them. Mm. Um, and I, a lot of these cultures, I mean, uh, what's frustrating is when cultures say something, say they are something that they are not. Mm. So let's dig into that. Because I actually think it's fairly common. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the values on the wall. Yeah. Um, integrity, trust, teamwork. But actually what you, what you feel and what you, what you understand as you look around the room is very, very different. Mm -hmm. And that's really jarring, right? Because you're being told one thing, but then the way that people behave is completely different. And I think, and I wonder what you, what you, what you think on this, but I believe that you know, the most important thing is, is actually the behaviors and the way that you are as an individual every single day. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter what you've written down. It doesn't matter what's in the pitch deck. It doesn't matter what's on the wall. It matters how you behave. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's something actually uh, additionally psychologically unsettling about, about the hypocrisy, about like having it on the wall and then not doing it. Mm. You like wonder where the mismatch is, like what you aren't understanding. Um, like uh, if somebody espouses that a business is intensely meritocratic, and like also very flat, like no one gets promoted. Everybody has the same title. It's just the best worker succeeds. But then you have to have leadership meetings and, and things like that. And so some people will go into a room for a meeting and if they only happen to pick white men for it, but you say, but like they have the same title as you, it's difficult to perceive that as purely meritocratic. Like it, um, I think people can get excited to be so counterculture, like uh, everybody describes Microsoft as like the worst possible, most bureaucratic, lifeless, end of tech, terrible place. And like uh, there is, uh, extremes are not good in any direction. To swing the other way and be flat and like not have mm. a direct line of reporting or clear communication channels, it means that there's a lot of gray space to infer um, when there's a lot of things that seem like they aren't meritocratic. Yeah. Um, and so that's an example of something that I've experienced that felt um, very hypocritical to like hear people interview candidates and talk about how the organization was very meritocratic and then um, experience what uh, uh, no women in the top three levels of leadership in the business. And like, so you're saying we're worse? Is that what that is? <laughs> yeah. And do you think that, do you think that they're doing that on purpose? Do you think it's conscious? Do you think that these cultures that have, that are very different to what they say they believe they are, do you believe that's a, conscious decision? 
I think generally the answer is no. I think generally they like to think that they're right and that they have this amazing culture and they just are not sensitive to or aware of the um, the friction that the behavior is causing. I think in some situations, if they are aware, it's like a deep apathy about like, like who cares what we say? We have to have values because every startup has values. Mm-hmm. But um, I have no, like we will rank them in a way that looks good on a website, but like I have no partiality to this thing, sort of the tone, another another approach. And so I think sometimes they aren't aware because they're deluded. And I think sometimes they are aware because uh, they don't actually care. Yeah. Yeah. And so wh- why don't they care? I, I think it's really hard. Uh, there's a tremendous loneliness that is comes from being in charge of a business. And I know, I know you know that, um, because of, and I, I don't, of course you can't, it's in a way you can't really appreciate until you're in the situation where you have news that is hard and you have to, it's not right for the business to hear it at the time. And so you have to be incredibly cheery and, and not let it seep through or whatever the right strategy is for the particular set of news. And so I think in the loneliness leaders can make decisions that make it feel like uh, the rest of the business is ancillary. Mm. Um, And you can look at the cap table and decide that that is emphasized numerically. Mm. Uh, But you don't get to build like giant company that sells for a billion with a B without people that are motivated, motivated to fulfill the mission. Yeah. And I think you're, you're spot on that. There are so many, business owners, founders, CEOs, MDs, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, who believe that sharing information, sharing vulnerability, sharing what's really going on is not the way to do it mm-hmm. and and that every situation needs to be managed and every conversation needs to have a line and everyone needs to be aligned on that. And I think I just completely disagree. I mm-hmm. think that humans understand trust. Mm-hmm. They know when someone's being honest with them. They know when, some, when someone's being real with them. And if they don't feel that trust, they're not going to engage, perform in the way that you want them to. And they're definitely not going to stick around. Mm. You know, I, I, I do believe that culture is not optional. A, a good progressive culture, it, if you want to keep those best people. And it's super expensive if you, if you keep losing the amazing people you have in the room and having to rehire. Absolutely. And the domino effect of the friction of losing someone that people like and respect. And if the fancy people are leaving, then what does that mean for the state of the business and just everything about it? It's not good. So you've experienced the good, you've experienced the bad, you've experienced all uh, different aspects of how culture can play out in a business. If you were sitting opposite me four years ago Mm. and I was about to start Charlie what would be the advice that you would give me knowing what you know today? What would be the takeaways from, uh, from, from knowing and, and understanding what you understand about culture? What would be the advice that you would give me about the things that I should go and do from day one in our company? Uh, so uh, if this is four years ago, I think I should open by apologizing that I'm going to be a lot, <laughs> that it will make sense soon. Um, and it will be worth it. <laughs> it will be worth it. Um, I, the number one thing I, is, of course, something I've already said, which is that you, as the leader of the business, will define 
the culture for the business. If you write down something that you don't hold with deep conviction, it will never last as a value for the business because you have to be able to embody it and uphold it every day in the tough decisions. And um, so that's one. The second is um, I would think, I would fast forward to, in your mind, to a bad situation, whether that be ethical um, or, you know, human resources related and have the principles you want to abide by in front of you now when there is, when there, it's not a fire burning in front of you that you Mm -hmm. have to put out immediately. So you remember the principles that you want to abide by. So um, the, uh, there, if you're a business that's starting and aiming to be a data centric business, which is, I don't know, everything these days, and you're going to have access to sensitive data, why not, before you have like a treasure trove of sensitive data, have an ethics charter? Like mm. if somebody, like what is our policy if somebody asks for this? And if somebody asks for that, like, do we sell that? Do we, and like write it down. It doesn't have to be something you share with investors or put on your website to look good. Um, though, given how businesses that aren't concerned about privacy are not thriving in the Valley right now, um, it's probably a good idea, but like think forward to these true challenges that will, uh, for your own convictions and, and write them down in advance. I think, um, and like iterate if you have co-founders or an advisory board, it doesn't have to be a solo activity. Um, and that also goes for, um, I would say, especially not just like broader ethics for the business strategy, but also things like sexual harassment policies and things mm-hmm. like that. So that you've written it down. And then when it's really hard, because the person who has a credible case accused against them is like an extraordinary individual contributor, you have it written down and you see in your own words and they're looking at you in the face and you know the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, so those two things jump out. Um, I, yeah, those. Those that, are the two key ones. That that jumps out to me. Okay, nice. So know that leadership starts at the top, and that you have to you have to walk the walk. If you're going to say something, you've got to embody it. Look ahead and consider what situations you might be in, and work out your views and your thoughts and your perspective on how you might want to make those decisions and get those written down today. And then also in there, I heard iterate. And I think that's that's really smart as well, right? These things have to iterate and they have to change as the business evolves. Yeah. And uh, it's also, you talked to, I've talked to a lot of um, really interesting teams doing really cool stuff in London um, since I've been here. And almost all of them at like the seed or series A point have for example, exclusively hired white male engineers. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's a real problem. We really care about diversity. And I'm like, I, I have to tell you, no, you don't. Because they don't do anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, well, we had to hire quickly. But now that we can, like, we w- now that we can have the luxury of, of looking for someone of a more diverse background, we're going to do that. And I'm like, do you know how extraordinarily lucky you'd be to get a woman of color to join a team of all white dudes? Mm-hmm. Like, how in so many ways there we like that could be an unpleasant psychological environment for what would be an extraordinarily talented person. So, like, the sooner you can recruit a diverse workforce, I think there's just outsize outsize returns long down the road. Yeah, for sure, from a cultural perspective. Yeah. So, um, with that absolute gem of a point, we are going to wrap it up today. So we'll finish with some thank yous. I've got to thank Eliza for coming in and joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, happy to be here. Happy to do it. Hope I wasn't too much. Did you enjoy it? I did. Good. Yeah. 
nice. Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I always learn something from you and that is, um, to me, that's the most important thing. I always come out of our conversations having new ideas and new thoughts. So thank you for doing what you do best. I've got to thank Mel uh, from Behind the Glass for producing today's episode. Thank you to Google Campus for hosting us today. To all of you listening along at home, remember that if you've got an issue and you'd like us to discuss it, please drop us a line. We're at Join Charlie on Twitter and I'm at Gately on Twitter. See you again next week. I've been Ben Branson-Gately and your host. This has been the Culture Ops Podcast.